Now, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8? Matthew chapter 8, we've changed sections. The Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 through 7 was a demonstration of the authority of the king as it related to his teaching. Uh, This Jesus is the one who has the power to speak to the heart of the law. He is the one who says, I came to fulfill the law. He speaks with authority about the kingdom. In fact, he even says that he will stand as the judge on who enters or who is kept out of that kingdom. And now as we come into chapter 8 and 9, we see the authority of the king demonstrated in a different way. Now we're going to be exposed to a series of miracles and responses that show this one's authority over creation itself. And last week we looked at the first three of those miracles that demonstrate the power of Christ. He heals a leper, and not only does he speak to the physical uh, disease that he has, but he shows that he has the power to make the unclean clean. This leper comes to him with a recognition that his authority and his power is absolutely enough to heal him, but Jesus must be willing And Jesus is willing, and so the man goes away whole and restored. And then we see the approach of another man who was an outsider, but not because he was physically ill. This time he was an outsider because of his birth. The Gentile, and not only a Gentile, but a centurion. A a representation of everything that the Jews would have found hateful and oppressive and offensive comes to Jesus, not in his own authority, but in submission to Christ's authority. And he says that uh, he recognizes that with a word, Jesus can heal his beloved servant. Uh, that at the power of the word of Christ, even something like physical disease is subject to that kind of authority. And Jesus remarks at this. He says, I haven't found faith like this in anyone in Israel. And he makes this startling proclamation. He says, many are going to come from east and west, from all over the world, and they are going to celebrate with the fathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, in this great celebration in the kingdom. And that would have been astounding to the Jews But it shouldn't be because way back in Genesis, when God makes those first covenant promises to Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to give you a blessing. And a part of that Abrahamic covenant blessing was that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what we see is Jesus comes, and what we see is this centurion comes, is something of the seed nature of that promise. It's the first inclinations of this inclusive type kingdom that even the Gentiles are invited to participate in. And then you have the warning that's on the other side of that that would be equally startling. That many of those who are called sons of the kingdom would end up missing the kingdom entirely. That there are those who are Jews by birth, the people of God by birth, who have covenant promises and the messianic promises and the writings of the law and the prophets and all of this that should have made it so easy or so natural to recognize who the Messiah was when he came and yet they will miss the kingdom because they reject the king. See, they have those very particular promises and covenants, and God is absolutely faithful to honor those. But to be uh, assuming that you are saved by virtue of your nationality or by virtue of your DNA or your heritage is an eternal mistake. And finally, Matthew presents the miracle of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And just like the other cases, his power is sufficient to heal her immediately and completely, and she's made whole and ready and restored to serve them and to go about her duties as she would have in the home. But more than that, Matthew ties it to a promise made by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 53. He says that this Jesus is the one who fulfills those suffering servant promises in those servant songs of Isaiah, that this is the one who came to bear the illnesses and the weaknesses and the diseases of his people. But all of that points to something greater. Jesus Christ is the one who bears away the physical infirmities and weaknesses of his people, but sin is at the heart of that weakness. The spiritual fall causes the physical fall. It is the root issue of that. And Jesus, at the pinnacle of his earthly ministry, does not come to simply heal physical diseases. He 
comes to deal with the sin problem that is at the root of all of those. He comes in humility to die on the cross to bear the sins of his people. And so his healing ministry is a glimpse of the greater purpose there. And so we see that this king is the one who comes to restore his people not just to physical life, although he certainly does that, but to restore them to spiritual life and to promise them and give them eternal life. And this week, we're going to move into the first response section. You remember I said it's three miracles and then a response section, and then three more miracles and a response section, and then three more miracles and a response section. That's kind of how the flow goes through 8 and 9. So now we come to that first response section, and it's in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. I'm going to read our text for today. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. This is what God's Word says. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a portion of your word that reminds us not only of the call to discipleship, but of the demands for discipleship that the call to follow after Christ would place us in harm's way. It would place us in the way of uncertainty and discomfort. And that that's not unnatural or unexpected, but that is what the course of life must follow for a disciple because we are kingdom citizens and therefore we are strangers and aliens in this world. God, we confess that it is easy for us to get comfortable here. Pray that you would convict us through your word today, that you would show us where we've prioritized things other than the king and his kingdom. And in bringing us to repentance, that you'd help move us then into obedience. Open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And then, God, would you strengthen us through the power of your spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've called us. God, we need your help to do any of these things, to understand and certainly to respond. And so we ask for your help today. In Christ's name, amen. Last summer, a young man came to my door, and he represented a particular pest control company, and his timing was impeccable because the pests were there and my wife was unhappy and I don't really love squishing spiders. They don't, it just doesn't appeal to me. And so he said that with this free treatment and then, you know, easy quarterly payments, the bugs would be gone. And that sounded very good in the moment. And so I made the decision and we moved forward and uh, everything was good at the beginning. The free treatment was there and the bugs went away for a little while. And then uh, the first quarter came and they did a treatment again and most of the bugs left, but not all of them. And And a couple of months later, we were looking for ways to save money. And uh, when we had signed up originally, he said, you know, you can cancel any time. We'd like you to do it for a year, but uh, you can get out of it if you need to. And so I went to cancel the contract. I was going to make the last payment, and then we were going to be done with that. And that's when the problem started. Because they said, sure, you can cancel. The only thing is that initial free treatment, uh, you got to pay for that. And as it turns out, paying for that initial treatment was more than what was left on my balance for the remaining quarterly treatments that I had coming. And so I said, that's not going to work, but they charged me for it anyway. And so for the next month and a half, it was this back and forth with me trying to get this charge removed and just trying to figure this whole thing out. And it seemed like every time I called, which was at least twice a week, every time I called, I was on hold for an hour waiting to talk to somebody. And then I would talk to a different person and a different person, and nobody actually had the power to do anything about it. And by the end of it, I was extremely frustrated. And I said, this is not what I signed up for. And it wasn't. It all got resolved eventually, but lots of blood, sweat, and tears. Mostly tears. 
But the fact was, when I came into it, I made two crucial mistakes. And the first of which was that uh, I didn't read the contract very carefully. I made a quick decision instead of an informed one. Uh, and if I had made a better decision, I probably, or made a more informed decision, I probably would have made a different decision. And the second real mistake was listening to a salesman who had every reason to sell me on something, but not every reason to represent himself exactly truthfully. And neither of those are anything but my fault in the final end of things. And it was a hassle, and it was slightly expensive, but in the end, no eternal harm was done. But here in chapter 8, we're going to come to a, selection, or a portion of Scripture that tells us that we must respond to this call of Jesus. And one thing that Jesus makes very clear is that we do not go away wondering what we signed up for. People have been following Jesus in their own way and on their own terms and for their own reasons from the beginning. But Jesus makes it clear that to follow him comes at a cost. That to follow after Christ means you do discipleship his way. And discipleship is wonderful, it is joyful, it is unimaginably, eternally worth it. But it is a cost. It is a cost to bear and a cross to bear. And that's what we see when we come here to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. This first response section in the Gospel of Matthew between 8 and 9 deals with the cost or the demand of discipleship. And remember, Matthew is not arranging these things chronologically. This is not a this happened, and then this happened, and this, then this happened. He very intentionally places this here. You have heard the king teach with authority. You have now seen the king act with authority and a power that you can barely even imagine. How will you then respond to this king? So let's open up beginning in verse 18, and we're going to look at the strenuous call of following Christ. Passage opens with a command, and that's in verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Remember, they're in and around Capernaum, and a crowd is now gathered around him. And we saw the crowd at the end of chapter 4, and the crowd at the end of chapter 7. And just last week, in verse 16, in the evening, they were bringing him many who were oppressed by demons. And the sense is that Jesus, wherever he is, there is an almost oppressive crowd. Where there is this kind of power, there is a significant draw from not only the local area, but from far and wide. And so that, the nature of that crowd makes it difficult to do ministry. And so every now and then Jesus removes himself and his disciples from that situation for rest, for refreshment, or to move, in fact, to go do ministry in another area. And this is one of those times Jesus gives orders to go to the other side, and that would be to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there in the northern part of Israel. And it's at that command that people are going to need to make a decision. Are they going to go with Christ? Are they going to travel with him when he goes? Or are they going to stay with their homes, their businesses, their families? See, we've come to kind of a moment of crisis as Jesus says the ministry is moving. It's certainly a moment of decision for some, and that's where we get this first approach. A man comes up to Jesus, and we've seen the approach of the leper. We've seen the approach of the centurion. This one comes differently. Verse 19, look at the approach here. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the scribes were the educated experts of the law. They knew what God had revealed in the Old Testament, and they were uh, very, very much concerned with making sure that the people followed those rules. Uh, now, many times in the Gospels, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees are presented as adversaries of enemies of Jesus. Um, but remember, there's nothing inherently sinful about being a scribe, and many of them were following along with Christ up to a certain point at least. And in fact, there would be many scribes and Pharisees who would later on come to Christ with genuine faith. But at this point, this scribe is following Jesus, and he comes and he says, Teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Now, he calls him teacher, and some people really fixate on that and say, well, he obviously had no idea who he was talking to, and to that we would say, of course he doesn't. 
Uh, he understands Jesus as a great teacher. And what did we just see in Matthew 5 through 7? He is the master teacher. But we can't knock him too much for not knowing completely who Christ is. What we'll see next week as Jesus calms a storm is that even the 12 at this point in Matthew are not able to give a very full or complete description or understanding of who Christ is. But he comes and he says, I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. He knew what it meant to identify a great teacher, and the scribes would know what it means to align themselves or to follow after a teacher. And he indicates that he's ready to go, whether it's uh, to the other side of the sea, to the other side of Israel, wherever, I'm ready to go. And to that, we would assume that when someone displays this kind of willingness, that Jesus would be immediately favorable to that. I mean, after all, didn't he just say of the centurion, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. Well, now maybe we're starting to see a glimmer of hope for that kind of faith in Israel. And that's what makes Jesus' answer so very puzzling to us at first. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that strikes us as a very strange thing to say. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus does not immediately say yes and amen. Jump in the boat. We're going to the other side. But he also doesn't say, no, you're a scribe or no, you're unfit or no, you don't understand or no, don't follow me at all. Instead, what he does is he says that to follow me will mean certain things. He says, even the basic parts of creation even the animals themselves have a place that they call their own. Foxes have their own burrow, their own hole. Birds of the air have their own nests. But the Son of Man doesn't have a place that is characterized as his own. Do you see the discrepancy that Matthew so subtly puts in there? What has he built Jesus up as throughout the first eight chapters? This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the King that is coming and has come. This is the Son of God with whom He is well pleased. This is the one with the authority to teach and heal. If this is the promised Messiah, then it seems almost unthinkable that He wouldn't have a place to call His own. After all, do not kings have authority to command a kingdom and a certainly a place for their head to rest? Not this King. Not at this time. And you go through the gospel accounts and that same thing rings true over and over. Jesus never owns a home. He never has a particular place. He doesn't own land that he calls his own. And it's not that there's some kind of inherent honor in being homeless or in being destitute. That's not the point. The point is that the king did not come to acquire earthly territory at this time. He is not establishing an earthly kingdom at this time. The king has come in humility. And as the king comes to do the work that he has come to do, he comes with authority, but he comes in humility. And his life and his ministry is going to bear a very particular strain. And some of the strain of the ministry of the king is going to be very, very physical. We are going to see him in the next section that we read next week about him falling asleep in the, in the middle of a boat, in the middle of a storm. There's physical exhaustion that goes along with being the servant of God like this. I mean, you read through Mark's gospel in particular, and his favorite word is immediately, and immediately this, and immediately this, and immediately this. And you read through the gospel of Mark, and it's short, and it's brief, and it's over in a moment, and it's exhausting. It's this constant picture of activity and action as Jesus utterly spends himself for the good of others. And to follow after Christ will mean a similar type of physical exhaustion as you carry out the ministry that you have been given. But the strain, of course, isn't only physical. There's also a consistent opposition that comes with being the servant of Yahweh. John chapter 1, verse 11 says he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. He is a constantly uh, 
pushed back against. He is constantly questioned and challenged and rejected ultimately. We know uh, that he goes to the cross not because of anything that he did, but because men love the darkness instead of the light. In other words, where we would expect that a king would come and easily institute his kingdom, this king comes in humility and service and discomfort and oppression and rejection. And he says that to follow me will mean that your life looks much more like that than even the basic comforts that we would associate with the animals, with the birds, with the foxes. And he uses such an interesting term here. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, if you were to look through the Gospels, it's over 80 times that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It is by far the most common way that he refers to himself. And it is the perfect title for who Christ is and what he has come to do. Because wrapped up in the idea of being the Son of Man is both exaltation and humility, all wrapped into one. And I want to look at that for just a moment to think about what that means, the idea of Jesus being the Son of Man, because once again, we're going to see it over and over. If you were to read back through the Old Testament, you would see several times where this title, Son of Man, is used. You could go to the book of Ezekiel, and it's all over the place. Ezekiel opens with this vision of God in his glory and his power. And it's awesome and it's terrifying and it's startling and wheels with eyes and fire and uh, this brilliant picture of the glory and the majesty of God. And then dozens and dozens of times when God interacts with Ezekiel, his chosen prophet, he says, Son of man, do this. Son of man, do that. And it's this built-in contrast between the awesome, holy glory of God and the frail nature of even the one who is called to speak on his behalf. You go through the Psalms and you see the idea of the Son of Man being this contrast to the lasting nature of God. It talks about the, the humility and even the temporariness and the frailty of mankind. And so the idea of the Son of Man becomes something that points to a lowly and humble nature. And then you come to Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to turn there with me if you would. Daniel chapter 7, we know that uh, the people of Israel were ultimately rebellious to their covenant obligations. God says, you will do these things, you will be my people, I will give you prosperity and health and I will keep you in the land, but if you disobey, ultimately I will remove those protections, I will chastise you, I will punish you, and ultimately if you continue to rebel, I will remove you from that land that I promised you and I'll give it to others. I will take you out of that land and you will know what it is to live as exiles. And they do. Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern part of the kingdom and later on Babylon comes in and removes Judah from her place. And Daniel is part of those exiles that go back to Babylon in the captivity. And in Daniel chapter 7, we come to a dream and a vision of Daniel uh, where he has this vision of things that are to come in the future. And I want you to look with me if you're there. Daniel chapter 7 Beginning in verse 9, look at a part of this vision that he has. It says, And I looked, and thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and, thousand, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. So Daniel's vision have this, has this great and exalted picture of the ancient of days, of God himself sitting as exalted ruler and judge over everything and thousands and thousands of those who are attending him. And it is this awesome picture of power and authority of God the Father. And then look down with me at verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the idea of a lasting kingdom is such a contrast in the book of Daniel that we just can't get into. But there's this one who has the nature of a son of man, one who by nature is humble, but he is brought before the ancient of days. And this one who comes in humility is given an everlasting kingdom and power and authority and dominion over every tribe and tongue and nation. And so built into this title, son of man although certainly not explicit to these people, is both the humility of Christ and the glory of Christ. In other words, it is the perfect way to refer to Jesus as He is and as He will be. You can go back to Matthew's Gospel now. See, the idea of the Son of Man is associated as one who would be seated as King over an everlasting kingdom, but one who comes with the nature of humility. It both reveals who he is and it conceals who he is. And to this scribe, who seems at least externally willing to follow the call of Christ, he says that to follow me in ministry is not to come immediately into a life of power and glory and fame and comfort and stability, but to follow after Christ is first and foremost a strenuous call. Now, unlike most weeks, I want to think through application kind of as we go through this. Uh, It's easy to apply things like the letters and the epistles. Paul writes to churches, and he says, have this attitude, do these things, and it's very, very easy for us to make the connection. When we go through narrative sections like this, this is narrative, this is story, it's events, it can be a little bit harder for us to apply. Our, Our tendency is to want to apply it, and so we tend to insert ourselves into the story, and very quickly we become David, uh, who is called to slay the Goliaths in our lives, and that is a terrible uh, application of 1 Samuel 17, so don't go there. Uh, So how do we think through this? Well, we understand that the same thing applies, that to follow Christ is a strenuous call. Uh, Not only here, but later on, Christ is going to call his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and to follow him. To live as a disciple of Christ means that you are counted as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If your citizenship is in heaven, then that by default means your citizenship is no longer here. Which means as you live day to day, week to week, month to month in this earth, it is never actually your home. And it means that as you live on this earth and as you walk through your day to day life, that there will constantly be that strain and that rub and that irritation that something is not quite right, that I am not quite where I am born and designed and made to be. And sometimes I wonder if we forget or we just neglect to tell people that as we share the gospel with them. The the church is so content sometimes to be this uh, magnetic thing that draws people in with the right lights and the right music and uh, the right ambiance. And we're just so content to get people in the door. And if only they'll sing about Jesus and if only they'll talk about Jesus, uh, then they must really be disciples. And we forget that as we present the Messiah, we present him as one who calls us to a very particular calling, a discipleship that is once again always worth it, but is absolutely demanding. What did Jesus say back in chapter 6 during the Sermon on the Mount? He says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. We cannot be a people that are characterized by pursuing earthly things, temporary things, fading and failing things. We have to be people that are characterized by pursuing the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So what do we teach people? How do we present this? 
I'll put it maybe in my particular context, what am I telling my kids about what it means to follow Christ? Do well in school so that you can get into a good college, so that you can get a good job, so that you can meet the right spouse, so that your life doesn't have all these hiccups and bumps that are going to come if you make the wrong decision anywhere along the road. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with doing well in school, there's nothing wrong with going to college, there's nothing wrong with getting a good and stable job. Nothing wrong with any of those things inherently, but are any of those things actually the goal? They're not. What if we told our kids the truth about what it meant to follow Christ? You are to do your best in school and you are to put every effort into relationships because that's in fact what Christ has called you to. And then if we went the next step and said, by the way, in doing that, in living your life as a committed follower, as a disciple of Christ, as a Christian, it is going to cost you dearly, my precious child. You are going to be seen as outcast, as other, as different, and the world will not be able to reconcile what they see in you. And then if we were able to say, but it is ultimately worth it. It is worth every cost. And I wonder if we don't do that because sometimes it's difficult for us to live that way. See, it's hard to tell my kids that they're supposed to be joyfully willing to lose everything uh, for the sake of following Christ when I'm not always joyfully willing to lay down everything for the sake of following Christ. It's easy to sing. It's easy to study. It's easy to talk about it here on Sundays. I know quite another thing when you look at the stock market report on Monday and everything's tanked. It's quite another thing when the doctor gives you the news that you absolutely didn't want to hear. It's quite another thing when people mistreat us and so we jump on social media and let everybody know just how wronged we've been. It's quite another thing when the election doesn't go the way we planned and suddenly we're spiraling into despair and discouragement and even anger and frustration. I think sometimes we forget that to follow Christ for millions of faithful brothers and sisters has and continues to mean losing jobs and families and even their very lives. We forget that Jesus says, follow me. And in doing that, it means you are going to take up your cross. You are going to be set against the world that is loving the darkness instead of the light. Because we can't think that the life of the disciple is going to be different than the life of his master. So this first man comes to Christ. And Jesus tells him that a disciple, a follower, is not one who's called to a life of stability, but in fact, maybe even to difficulty and strain. If the king spent himself to proclaim the kingdom, then so too should his disciples expect to spend themselves for that call. Uh, But not only is it a difficult call, now we're going to see how it's a very urgent call. Another man approaches Jesus with the desire to follow him, and Jesus once again provides a very unexpected answer. So let's look at the urgency of the call to follow Christ. Once again, we see that it opens with an approach. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples comes and says to him, now disciple means learner or follower. And at this point, once again, I want to remind you, it's applied to everybody who follows after Jesus. Uh, There are some who are disciples and will be for the long haul. There are some who are disciples and will eventually fall away. Disciple is broadly applied to all of those following after Jesus this time, desiring to learn from him, desiring to follow him. And it says another disciple, disciple, which indicates that that scribe was counted in this same group. So we're not just talking about the 12 here. But this one comes to him with a very particular request. He says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says, we're going to the other side. And this one says, great, I will come with you. But please, Lord, first, let me go and let me take care of the burial of my father. And that seems like a very reasonable request. 
especially in this cultural context, uh, the law commanded men and women to honor their father and mother. And part of that honoring of father and mother meant that you looked after them until they died, that you would properly attend to the burial, and even that there was a, a prescribed period of mourning after they were in the ground. And there's been a lot written about kind of what stage of the process this guy was at. Some say that the father is dead and that he's asking to go attend to the physical burial. Uh, some say that the father's been dead for a while and they're waiting for the second part of the burial. Um, they didn't embalm people, so you were laid in the tomb. And then as decomposition happened, they'd pack you up and put you in a bone box called an ossuary. And there were kind of two phases to that burial. Maybe he was waiting for that. Uh, some say that the father wasn't dead yet at all, but he's waiting for him to die so that he can come into his inheritance. And we have to really admit that while one of those is certainly the right answer, it's mostly speculation, so it's tough to come down to a hard line on what that is. Uh, the wonderful thing is, whatever particular scenario it was, uh, the answer of Jesus is absolutely applicable. Because look at the response in verse 22. It's another unexpected response. What is the answer? In verse 22, Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Follow me. The call is to follow Christ, but this man finds it difficult based on a circumstance. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, the physically dead cannot bury anybody. We know that. So what is Jesus saying? If it's not physical death, he must be talking about the spiritually dead. Leave the spiritually dead to attend to their own earthly temporary matters. And once again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He is not saying dishonor your father. He is not saying reject the idea that you have to care for people. What he is saying is that the call to the kingdom is an urgent call. The king is here, the kingdom is at hand, and there is work to be done. Again, we go back to Matthew 6 for a moment. He says, don't worry even about the basic needs of life, what you'll wear, what you'll eat, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's still the call. And I think it becomes more clear if we were to look to Luke's gospel. Luke gives us this same pericope, this same piece, uh, albeit in a little bit different context. And he gives us a little bit of added detail. In Luke 9.60, Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But then he adds this. He says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, the call to Christ is an urgent call because the proclamation of the kingdom is an urgent message. There is work to do. And immediately after that, Luke gives one more example that, example that Matthew doesn't. In Luke 9.61, another man says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And to that one, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, when you pursue the kingdom, it is a consuming thing. It is your central focus. A farmer who is plowing does not look back over his shoulder. You get crooked lines and wasted ground. You run into rocks and they break up the tools. They make it impossible to do what you've been called to do. Uh, to live your life as a disciple of Christ is to have a disciple of Christ to be the central pursuit of your entire life. Uh, the work is in front of us. The kingdom is in front of us. And the world offers distractions of every size and shape, but none of them compare to the work that we've been called to or the inheritance that we've been promised. And there is an urgency to this call. So how do we apply this? And I think it comes very directly to the question of where our focus and our priority is. Uh, we have heard the call to Christ. We've heard it preached. We've heard it read. We've seen the power of the king. We've read about the power of the king. And very often when the call is, follow after me, we will say, Jesus, of course I will follow you. And I think most of us would say that. But practically, as we order our lives, we say, Jesus, I would love to follow you, but... And then we fill in the blank with any number of other things. 
Jesus, I would love to follow after you. I'd love to be more involved in church. I'd love to do some ministry, but my work schedule just makes it impossible. And before I get the emails, yes, work is important. In fact, work is often the most primary way that God sees fit to supply our physical needs. I am not arguing that or saying that there's anything bad about that. But there comes a point where needs are met, but work keeps going because it sure would be nice to have a little bit bigger house, a little bit longer vacation, a little bit different stuff. We have to very prayerfully consider where that line is drawn. And as long as we're stepping on toes, we might as well go all the way. I'd love to be more involved in church, but my kids just have so many things that they need to be at. I'd love to do ministry, but you know, we're just gone so many weekends. And once again, save the emails. I've got four kids. They've all been involved in sports, some of them at a very high level. And I am not saying we have always gotten this right. If you hear that, you have misheard me. I have blown this on many occasions. What I can also say is that we are now raising a generation that has seen that any excuse is a good enough reason to not fellowship with God's people. To not spend time among God's people. To not pour themselves out for others. To not sacrifice the temporary for the sake of the eternal. Uh, There's times when we let age itself define this. I would love to follow after God. I'd love to do more ministry. But you know, I did that back then. I've done my time. I've served my time. I've done my ministry. And it's time for the young to come along and do their part. And I would remind those of you who are senior citizens or senior saints, seasoned saints, awaiting your eternal home, that the church desperately needs you for every moment that you're here. We need your wisdom. Our marriage is needed. Our kids need it. Our young families need it. And I've seen it on the other side. You know, I would love to follow after Christ, and I'm sure I will one day. I'll devote my life uh, to following after Christ in a really meaningful way once I get high school figured out, once I get my major figured out, once I graduate college, once I get married, once I have kids, once my career is established. And what you don't understand is there's always another thing. There's always another thing to wait for. And whether you're in seventh grade or 11th grade or uh, you're just in college, if God has called you, If Christ has called you and you've responded to that call and you've placed your faith in Christ, then the call is let the dead bury their own dead, guys. Let the world be concerned with the things of its world because frankly, the church does not have time. The time is short and the King is coming and we have been given an urgent work to do. And again, I'm not saying don't work. I am not saying don't join a sports team. I am not saying don't participate in extracurricular activities, whatever that looks like. I am saying to be a disciple of Christ fundamentally alters how you look at those things. Because not, it is now not I will work and then I will have time to do this discipleship work. It is now I work so that I might have an opportunity to impact others in this sphere for Christ. It is now I run cross country. I do the things. I do whatever I do. I do my sport. I do my club For the sake of adding ministry and value to the kingdom of God, even as I do those things that he's gifted me to do. So here's the call and the question. Jesus says, follow me. And to do that means you count the cost and you follow wholeheartedly. You've heard him teach. You've read and you've heard of the power of the king. And now the only question is, how will you respond to this king? In conclusion, I think we need to think through the value of discipleship. Because uh, if this is what it looks like, we have to answer a very fundamental question, is that, is it worth it? If you're going to tell me that everything else in my life has to fall to a very different second, a distant second, is it worth it? If you're going to tell me that this is going to cost me physically, financially, emotionally, is it worth it? If I'm going to tell my kids that this is going to cost them, that they are going to be seen as different, as outcasts, as others, 
Is it worth it? If I'm going to go proclaim this gospel to a world and say you have to follow me through this narrow gate and down this hard road that leads to life, I have to know, is it worth it? And can I remind you that it absolutely is. That it is all worth it. That Jesus Christ gives us life and he has not promised us this haltering, stammering, barely good enough life. He has promised his disciples life and life abundantly that he walks through us, even through the darkest valleys of the shadow of death, that the good shepherd is with us. And because he is, that we lack no good thing, that even when we cry and we suffer, that not a tear is wasted, not a struggle is wasted, not a sorrow is wasted, but in his sovereign power and loving goodness, he uses each one of those to conform us to the image of the Son. And so even our suffering is used for his glory and for our good. And so it is absolutely worth it. That he's given us his word. That the God of the universe has spoken to us in human language, in finite human tongue that we can understand and we can get a glimpse of who he is and we can have an understanding of who we are. And not only that, but we have an understanding of his plan for the nations and for the ages. And he's given us his spirit that God dwells in and among and with his people. Do you see how unfathomable and unthinkable that is? Think back to the Old Testament. God was with his people. He was among his people, but there was always a barrier. I could bring my sacrifice, but I could only go this far. And then the priest had to do the rest. And if I'm just Joe Priest, I can come and I can do my work in the tabernacle or the temple, but there's always that other barrier that I simply can't get behind. And even if I'm the high priest, even if I am the guy, it's one time, one day a year for this much time, and I'd better get it right or I'm done. And now with the work of Christ, we've been invited to draw near. And now with the completion of the work of Christ, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to convict us, to bring us to repentance, to regenerate our hearts, to comfort us, to guide us. Can we even imagine the blessing of living like that? And if that weren't enough, he places us in a church, which believe it or not, is supposed to be a blessing. People who walk alongside of us, who love us, who care for us, who meet needs, who minister to us and who we get to minister to in times of difficulty. And more, people who love us enough to walk alongside of us and say, you are off the path, come back. God has given us so much. And at the end of all of that, the king calls us home. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this time aren't even worth comparing to what's going to come. And in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he puts it this way. He says, we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day because this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that we see are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, yes, it is worth it. To the seasoned saint who cannot wait to go home, every day that the Lord leaves you here is worth it and there is work to do. To those of you who are struggling in your work or in your relationships who have every reason to give in and to go the way of the world because it would just be easier to do it without opposition for a minute, I promise you it is worth it to maintain the path of discipleship. To those of you who are young and you're already struggling to find a sense of belonging in a place in this world and it seems like being an outsider is just more than you can bear right now, It's worth it. To follow after Christ is worth it. To somebody out there who needs to be reminded that today, although it is difficult and painful, to walk in the path of the disciple is worth it. That obedience to Christ is worth it. Whatever it costs, whatever you give, the pursuit of his kingdom is worth it because through his sacrifice, he has bought us and redeemed us and called us his own. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that are quick to get distracted, quick to move on, quick to 
claim discipleship but forget to count the cost. God, I pray that you would convict us of that. That you would bring us back to the place where the wonder and the joy of our salvation consumes us and the path of discipleship becomes the lens through which we view everything else. God, will you help us to be obedient and in our obedience to call others to follow after you. God, make us a church that walks well with one another and that proclaims your name loudly and clearly for the world to hear. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.